0: I think there are times that we miss the really important part of eschatology – hope, comfort, call to action, a call to holiness, devotion – and instead we play this kind of parlor game where we try to figure out – and we use the Bible like it's tomorrow's newspaper. I don't think the Bible was ever intended to be used in such a fashion.
1: Maybe you're like me and you spent most of your Christian life looking at the book of Revelation and going, this doesn't make any sense. Let's just say Jesus wins and not spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. Except for that one time that I was in college and I said, I'm gonna take an apocalyptic literature class and I'm gonna study this and I'm gonna understand it better. And I might have walked away from that class being more confused on the different positions. Or maybe you're someone who really does love this stuff and spend a lot of time thinking about all the different views of eschatology, Christian end times, and want to make sense of it. What I want to do today with my guest, uh, Professor Kenneth Samples, is to... Maybe take a step back, not get so deep into the weeds of all the different views, but to help you see the practical benefits to the Christian life of studying and times, to help you see the apologetic significance of it, of why it's important if we're going to engage this culture well, and then we will be getting into making a little bit more sense of these different views looking at the pros and cons of each one. So if that sounds fun, we're going to be having this conversation. It's based on his book called Christian Endgame. And like I said, Professor Kenneth Samples is my guest. He is a senior scholar at Reasons to Believe, a science faith organization looking at current scientific evidences pointing to reasons to believe in God and Christianity, as well as an adjunct professor at Biola University, uh, where I took logic and critical thinking with him back in about 2015 or 16. So Professor, Samples. This is your, I think your third time on the show, but thanks for coming on and joining me again. It's good to see you, Ryan. I'm really
0: proud of the ministry you're you're involved with and always look forward to our chats.
1: Yeah. Now I, I'm excited about this and I actually, maybe I, I should have pulled this up a second ago. I'm, I'm curious because I, I you've written a lot of other books uh, that are wonderful resources and I'm trying to remember which ones you came on to discuss. And so I'm pulling it up here really fast. Oh, so you've come on, you've talked about logical fallacies, logic and critical thinking. Then uh, you addressed your book on um, classical Christian thinkers. And we looked at church history and the classic Christian thinkers, uh, the important theological positions from different classical Christian thinkers. And then your I think maybe your most recent book, uh, or one of them at least, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined. So those are all the different kind of conversations yeah. that I've been able to have with you, and, and it's been a joy. And so here we are going to talk about end time stuff. And the reason for this is I've been getting a lot of questions with everything going on in Israel right now, saying, hey, how do we see this and make sense of this in light of scripture? Does God have a plan for Israel? Has Israel been replaced by the church? Is there a rapture? What's happening? Is this pointing to that we're in the end times? And I said, great questions. I'm going to bring someone on to answer all those for you. So maybe we, let's just start at the beginning sure. and say, okay, for those who maybe are just saying, man, this is confusing, it's hard to understand, uh, let's just say Jesus wins. What is the practical benefits? What are these benefits of saying, no, maybe take take a step back, and it is important to study end times, even though it is difficult?
0: Yes, uh, Ryan, I became very interested in eschatology Back when I worked at the Christian Research Institute with Walter Martin, I studied groups like Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. A lot of those groups emerged out of the 19th century with an eschatological focus. So that was what got me interested. And, of course, one of the points I make strongly in my book is that when eschatology is done badly, it creates apologetic problems for the church. So you want, to, you want to approach the subjects with with real care. Now, I think some people are tempted to say, look, Jesus wins, why bother? But the, the Bible has a lot to say about eschatology, about the last things, future events. One scholar, and I haven't counted all the verses, but he's a pretty good scholar. I'll bet he's right. He says there are more references to the second coming in the New Testament than there are to the atonement. So, the Bible takes seriously the idea of the future. Now, what are some of the practical elements? I think these are very important. Uh, Ryan, one of the things I discovered when I studied the world's religions is that the world's religions really, in my view, lack hope for people. Uh, hope is such an essential point. And the second coming is called the blessed hope. There are lots of people in our society today who suffer, have pain, sorrow, difficulty. You know, we see these events uh, in Russia. We see these events in the Middle East. We wonder, wow, is there ever really going to be justice in the world? I think that sense of hope that uh, Christ came the first time as the suffering servant to take our sins away. He will come a second time, and and he will make all the crooked straws straight. There will be uh, a redemption applied to the world. And I think that that's very important to recognize that we have a hope when things look bleak, when things look difficult. I mean, my father was a combat soldier in the Second World War. If you want to have a time where people could have Uh, been tempted to think this is the end. Uh, The Holocaust, 75 million people killed. Uh, So I've seen this through multiple generations where people have made predictions. But I think hope is such a critical uh, point. Another practical element that I think is so often missed, Ryan, is the New Testament doesn't want us to speculate. The New Testament wants us to focus on a life of holiness, a life of devotion. And we can't control these eschatological views. Fortunately, they're in the hands of a sovereign God, but it should encourage us to, to live a life of holiness, to grow, uh, to raise our families, uh, to to produce uh, the, the, the finest God-loving children that we can. So, holiness. Uh, We don't want to be caught uh, in a life of sin when the the Lord comes in glory. I think also action, it motivates us. How about the Great Commission? How about reaching people? I mean, if I wrote a book about Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism 50 or 60 years ago, Ryan, I'd have to go overseas. Not anymore. I mean— just very close to the school that you and I were at, Biola. You have a temple, you have a mosque, uh, you have a Jehovah's Witness Center. This should motivate us to engage in the Great Commission, carrying out the gospel. Uh, You know, we could also mention the idea of devotion, that Uh, A lot of times, people speculate about eschatology, and it doesn't lead them to holiness and devotion. It leads to insecurity. It leads to fear. It leads to anxiety. And I think that eschatology is intended for the opposite purpose. It's to give us confidence, even when things look very difficult.
1: Yeah. No, and I think that's so good. It just reminds me as I was reading through your chapters, you kind of talk about this, the blessed hope that we have and walk through these kind of takeaways that we can have. You know, one that really stood out to me is this idea of comfort in death. Um, you know, I, I was asked to speak at my grandma's funeral at the gravesite. And it's like, man, what do I say? And, and what ended up happening is this really just going to scripture and showing the confidence that we have in our salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. And, and just, again, the hope, the assurance, uh, it is just such a beautiful thing that we can know where we are going uh, and understanding that Jesus wins is, is huge in that. Now, now what would you say though, to kind of maybe the, uh, the, the, objection to where people say, look, when Christians focus so much on end times and, and, and heaven and hell and all this kind of stuff, it causes them to, to not be motivated to action here. They kind of become distant. It's like, no, I'm just, I'm just waiting for heaven. And, and I'm not doing things in this life. I'm not evangelizing or sharing or training or equipping. I'm just focused on what the future has. So you have this idea of it motivates you to action, but what about that objection that says, no, it's actually the opposite.
0: Yeah, in the history of eschatology, and remember the church has been addressing these issues for 2,000 years. Some of Christianity's most influential thinkers have have gone after these issues and thought through them. Remember St. Augustine, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, when he died, the Roman Empire was coming apart. Civilization was disintegrating. There have been many times in church history in which there have been deep challenges quite similar to today. Now, the idea, though, that we can become so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. That's not, that's not a biblical principle. Uh, The the biblical principle there is that it it is just as you said, when, you know, I spoke at my father's funeral, um, uh, I could see him lying in the casket, and it encouraged me that uh, there is a mere Christian eschatology. Christ is going to return, He's going to resurrect the dead. He's going to judge. There is going to be this ultimate justice. He is then going to create uh, a a new creation, and there will be an eternal state. I'm going to see my father again uh, because he was a believer in Christ. So it has real practicality. It hurts to lose the people we love, but the hope of the resurrection really encourages us.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I think there's there's just... it's so important to really kind of focus in and see that assurance that scripture does provide in, in what is going to happen in the end. We know the end of the story, even though we may see it slightly differently, which is what we'll get to here in a moment. Now, what about in kind of apologetic conversations? Is this is kind of a worldview apologetic uh, you know channel that I focus on? I'm not doing a lot of theological issues here, uh, but why <laughs> understand end times when it comes to apologetic conversations and making a defense for the faith? Yeah.
0: Yeah, great, great question. One way of thinking about a worldview is to think of a worldview as four successive events. So, this would be the Christian worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, that's not the only way to think about a worldview, but it's a very helpful way to think about a worldview. God created the world we're created in his image. There's a catastrophic fall. Because of that fallenness, we need redemption. But what will follow redemption is consummation. And again, you know, many people raise questions. Why doesn't God do this? Or why does he allow that? That fourth part, consummation, is the eschatological point where God will again intervene into the world. I love an expression that has long been used uh Uh, within eschatological circles, it's the expression already, not yet. Christ has come into the world and through his life, death, and resurrection, our sins have been forgiven. But that, that role that God has played, it is not fully come yet. And so, we live in this already, but also anticipate this expectation. So, eschatology is very important. It gives us, again, hope and purpose and all of those kinds of things. It is part of that last part of our worldview. But when it's done badly, it creates real problems. And non-Christians often misunderstand this.
1: Yeah. And and so one of the things like problems that I think comes up is, is what I've often been asked. I go speak at a youth conference and frequently it's like, hey, when do you think the world's going to end? Like, when is Jesus coming back? And I'm like, I don't know. And Jesus didn't know. And I'm not going to take a guess. It's like, but if you were to guess, like, when would it be like in five years, 10 years? And it's like, a lot of people just really want that, that future prediction. Uh, You talk a lot about in that, in your book, kind of what, why is that problematic to start speculating on when exactly this is going to take place?
0: Yeah. Let me give you a little quick history. Uh, In the 19th century, uh, there was a New England Baptist minister named William Miller in 1844. He said the Lord was going to return October 22nd, uh, 1844. Well, they said the, the day came, but the Lord didn't. And there was this great disappointment. There was the sense like, well, does that mean the Bible is untrue? It's failed? Yeah. Out of that came various eschatological views, the birth of Seventh-day Adventism, later Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, Brian, I don't have to go back too far to remember Harold Camping. 1994, he predicted the second coming. He was wrong. Uh, He didn't stop. He didn't repent. He didn't say, you know what, I really messed up. He predicted again in 2011 it was false. I've had secular skeptics come to me and say, look, uh this is just proof that the Bible is not really the inspired word of God. You guys can't understand it or interpret it properly. I think when apolo- I think when eschatology is done poorly, it creates apologetic problems mm-hmm. and it shows us that we need real careful approaches to these types of issues. So I remember I was at a church in Christmas Eve, uh, 1979, and one of the leading eschatological writers of our time said, Will Jesus come in the 1980s? Yes. Well, everybody who's predicted a date for the second coming has been wrong. I would conclude that the next person who does it will also be wrong. And it creates all kinds of difficulties and challenges You know, I I think that we need to be held accountable for what we say about these things. And I don't want to give secular people reason to doubt me. I want them to think, hey, Ken and Ryan, when they deal with issues, they handle truth as if it's sacred, because it Mm -hmm. is.
1: Yeah. So that just kind of leads into a question that came in from the faithiest atheist, uh, where he said, is there a metric we could reach one day by which Christians would have to say, okay, this isn't going to happen. So obviously when we make false predictions, as you mentioned, then the skeptic comes back and says, see your Bible's wrong. But is there something to where, if X doesn't happen by a certain time, then okay, maybe there is a problem here. I think it's fair to say
0: that there are issues in Christianity that could potentially or hypothetically falsify the faith. For me, of course, right at the heart of that would be the resurrection. If Jesus, if it was shown that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, even the great apostle Paul, who was so important in showing how Jesus's life, death, and resurrection related to the Old Testament events, which by the way is right at the heart of eschatology. Uh, But I also think if it could be shown maybe that creation ex nihilo was false or that human beings are not fallen, uh, those are potential areas. I I do agree that by making these statements and acting irresponsibly, we give good reasons for atheists to question uh, the faith. Now, of course, on the other hand... If there is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, if there is evidence of creation from nothing, and if there is evidence for original sin, then I think it supports well. And I'll tell you, I think original sin is an equal opportunity employer. We see it everywhere. People are fallen. They're broken. So uh, our atheist friend is right. I think there are times there are legitimate ways of testing the truth of Christianity but I think it's appropriate maybe for secular people to realize that sometimes people can either intentionally or unintentionally misinterpret the biblical text.
1: So there, is, is there something that you think, if interpreted properly, uh, that we could get to one day and say, this has not happened by this point, maybe there's actually a problem? Or is everything, no, that's a future fulfillment and we just still have to wait a little bit longer? Sense.
0: I think I think in looking at the future, it becomes more difficult. I think looking at the past seems a little more recognizable. Uh, the The greatest theologian of uh, the early church, the Apostle Paul, he focused more on the Christological element. Uh, could there be something in the future that could be a potential? Uh, defeater for Christianity. Well, I would just stick with the present and say I think I think when Christians are hasty when they act irresponsibly, they give secular people good reason to question. And and that's and, and that's a tragic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I think this is helpful because it kind of uh, goes into, I think, or, or, you know, carries into what you spend a lot of time in your work focusing on. And one thing I really appreciate is, is that when we start to get really specific and say, this is what the Bible says, that often can lead into some problems. Not that we can't have views. I have views. Uh, but I, I love that you, you focus on this thing that you call mere eschatology. And, and I love that because on my channel, I, I present views that I have, but I try to kind of present a various form of Christian views. And so I remember being at a summer camp once where I was like, hey, some Christians think this, some Christians think this. And a student got really mad at me that I would say that there's more than one option, um, that I, that it's not just simply one right way. And I've actually been to churches where people have warned me, um, hey, don't speak on your view of end times or your view of the rapture because it will not come over well here. Or don't speak on your view of of old earth creationism because it won't be welcomed here. And so there's definitely gonna be some people that, no, this is the one right way and that's the only right way. On the other hand though, what I love to do is just kind of focus on where can we all agree and let's agree agree to disagree on the secondary, tertiary, more minor things. and that's what you do here with this idea of mirror eschatology. So can you, you, you mentioned it previously yeah. before, but can we come back to that idea of like, what are the things, no matter what view you hold on amillennialism or premillennialism or whatever, all Christians agree on these points? I think that this is a, this is such an important message
0: and it is so often missed. I think if I would have gone back and rewritten my book, I might have given it that title, Mere Christian Eschatology. I'm I'm playing there on Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Lewis didn't talk about his Anglican distinctives or Catholicism or Lutheranism. He talked about mere Christianity. That, in many respects, is kind of a creedal Christianity. I mean, when I read the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, I see the essence of Christianity. It focuses on creation, fall, redemption, second coming. Uh, It's clear that the second coming is an essential component of Christianity. The Lord will come again, and his kingdom will have no end. We're not given specifics, so the timing of the rapture or the definition of the millennium is not part of essential Christianity. Uh, But these five really are, and the first one is the second coming that the Lord will return to earth, that this will be an extraordinary event. Imagine Christ coming in all of his glory. Um, Luther talked about Jesus having adopting a theology of the cross where Christ comes as a lowly figure uh, and is ultimately taken by Roman authorities and, and is uh, crucified. In the second coming, he will come in glory. There'll be nothing lowly about him. This will be a time of, of great judgment. So the second coming. And what will he do at that second coming? He will raise the dead. Everyone who has ever lived will be brought back into existence in a resurrection body, both believer and non-believer. Now what will that be like? Will it be a brand new creation? I mean, when we look at Jesus' resurrection body, we have continuity and discontinuity. All that means is Jesus' body before resurrection, and Jesus' body after resurrection, they had commonalities and differences. It was the same body, but it had been changed. We will have resurrected bodies. And then there will be the great judgment. Um, again, I'm a student of the Second World War. I think of uh, you know the judgment of the Nazis at Nuremberg. What will it be like to stand where justice itself, God, who is truth, goodness, and beauty and justice will judge everybody's works. Nobody will ever get away with anything. I mean, if God doesn't exist and a person is involved in, you know, maybe a serial rapist or, or human trafficking or murder, uh, if they die, it means they've escaped justice. But the Bible says Christ will return, he will resurrect, yeah. he will judge, then he will He will recreate the world. The world, the earth, the heavens and the earth will undergo a change. Will that be simply a renewal or will it be a brand spanking new? Well, there are debates about that. But then we will live in eternity with resurrected bodies. There'll be no more pain, suffering, and evil. This is that extraordinary state that Revelation 20 speaks about. So those five All my premillennial friends affirm those. All my amillennial friends affirm those. Even my postmillennial friends, and I have theologians who, friends who write in all of these fields, they all agree with those five points.
1: Yeah. So the one question I did have about those five points, uh, one of them um, being this eternal, um, I just lost where it was here in my notes, but this, uh, the eternal resting place that we are going to be going to. Um. Here's the, the page, I think. Oh, man, that's bad. I lost it. Okay. But anyways, um, this idea of what about the, and you address this a little bit in your book, what about the, um, the, the uh, annihilationist or the conditional yeah. immortality? What about yeah. the person who says, no, actually, maybe it, it's, it's not this eternal conscious torment where we go to, I don't hold to that view. Yeah, yeah, well this is very important and again my interest in
0: apologetics was primarily from a my interest in eschatology was primarily an apologetic issue because I have a number of 7th day adventist friends they believe in conditional immortality, they believe in annihilationism, so they don't believe that we have an eternal soul. They believe we have an animated body, and so when we die, we go to a state of sleep or extinction, sometimes referenced as soul sleep. Then, at the resurrection, we come back alive. And they also believe in annihilationism, so a person who rejects God, has no savior, is placed in hell, suffers a uh, uh, a length of time commensurate with their sins and then is annihilated or obliterated. Well this is a denial of of eternal conscious punishment. So in my book I look at these various challenges like uh, annihilationism, our relationship of the soul. The traditional Christian view is that human beings are a union of body and soul. At death the body and soul are divided, we go to an intermediate state. It's a state of consciousness, we were with Christ, we are with his people, we worship, we love, we serve, but we await the eternal state where we'll be resurrected, our, our soul and body, again, uh, in ensoulment in and enfleshment. Uh, that is the typical uh, Christian perspective, but again, it is challenged by other views like uh, universalism, uh, like annihilationism, Uh, these various challenges that come. I defend the historic position on these views. Uh, It's true that uh, there is an increasing number of evangelicals who entertain some of these ideas, but I think the Bible historically has taught eternal conscious punishment. I think the Bible does teach basically a body-soul dualism. Now, not a Descartian one, but a basic unity of body and soul. Mm -hmm. I reject universalism. Uh, So there are eschatological issues that move away from classical or historic Christianity to one degree or another. Now, having said all of that, I know some Seventh-day Adventists who believe some of those things, but I still think they're Christian because they trust in Jesus Christ. And so we want to be cautious about Uh, You know, I don't like the idea of people being canceled. Well, as a theologian, I'm very careful before I cancel somebody's Christianity. They have to really deny the essence of the faith. And I don't think all of those elements are necessarily the essence of the faith.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist. And, wow, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, and, and so I still have family that that's, that are Seventh-day Adventists, and when my grandma passed, she was a practicing Adventist, and the funeral was at an Adventist church, and so when I was asked to speak at the gravesite, I remember going to my mom, and my family has, has left uh, that denomination, and... Saying, Mom, I want to say, Grandma, right now is rejoicing in the presence of Jesus with her memory restored, and and you know, and uh, and it's like, well, that might upset some people because there are people at the funeral that're like, oh, look at her asleep, waiting for Jesus to come back, and so the way I phrased it was, she passed, and the next thing she knows is that she'll see Jesus, and in my mind, that's right now, and in other people's minds, it's when she wakes yeah. up from her soul sleep, yeah. and so that's kind of how I phrased it to try to. Yeah find that common ground is the next thing that she knows is she'll be in the presence of Jesus. Um, But it was interesting kind of navigating that theological difference as I'm speaking at my grandma's funeral. Um, Now when it comes to kind of uh, then some of these uh, disagreements. Then, so we we all agree on these five points, um, but w- there are some disagreements, and there's kind of some some issues. And so, one of the issues you mentioned, uh, and we talked about, is this idea of date setting. Uh, it Seems to be like another issue uh, is kind of trying to figure out, or the common question is, who is the Antichrist? And yeah. so, kind of, how should we approach this question if 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 we're out there and someone says, "Hey, man, do you think so and so is the Antichrist? Uh, who is the Antichrist of Revelation? How are we supposed to respond to that question?"
0: Yeah, sometimes uh, we call that pinning the tail on the Antichrist. And uh, we need to be very careful about these things. Again, um, Ryan, there are real challenges with eschatology. Uh, you know, much of this comes out of apocalyptic literature, which is heavy in symbolism. It also relates the issue of how the old and the new relate to each other. That's a challenging question. And then getting into, you know, even even these further areas of the Antichrist. Now, again, I've been a Christian for about 40, 45 years. Uh, I remember 30 years ago, 35 years ago, all of the leading eschatological thinkers, Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, many of these and very thoughtful Bible teaching people, they believed categorically that the Antichrist was gonna come out of the European Union. And uh, they talked and published books and sold books all of a sudden, now it's changed. Now it is potentially a Muslim that's going to be the Antichrist. Then there are other people who say, well, it may be Barack Obama is going to be the Antichrist. <laughs> I think that we need to be very careful because, again, uh, you have secular people listen to your podcast. I have secular people who listen to my podcast. They're interested in what we have to say, but they recognize that people kind of take these ideas and they stretch them, and they act as if Christianity depends on those interpretations. Again, my parents lived through the Second World War. I always wonder, why did my parents have such respect for Franklin Roosevelt? I think the answer to that was the president gave them hope during a very difficult time. Remember, Ryan, in the first three years of World War II, the Axis was winning, America was really in a difficult situation. Um, I think there are times that we miss the really important part of eschatology, hope, comfort, uh, call to action, a call to holiness, devotion. And instead, we play this kind of parlor game where we try to figure out and we use the Bible like it's tomorrow's newspaper. I don't think the Bible was ever intended to be used in such a fashion. The Bible is a book. It is a a book. It has to be interpreted by context, by the meaning of particular words, by the understanding of its genre. Christians are people of the book. We should be held to literary standards in our hermeneutical interpretation.
1: Yeah, that's good. Now, what then would you say to someone who comes back to that and says, um, or or say like, oh man, but we're waiting for this future antichrist. Who is it? And it's like, well, what about 1 John 2, 17 and 19 that says, children, in the last hour, as you've heard that the antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So what about someone who says, we're not waiting for someone. I'm not going to pick it because there are many antichrists that have come. We're in the end times. It's not someone future that we're waiting for. What about this response?
0: Well, in some ways I think that that's a very careful point. John, in writing, and I believe that John not only wrote the three epistles, but he wrote the book of Revelation, notice he says, we're in the end times. That is, an, an amillennial interpretation is that the end times is the time between first, Christ's first and second coming. They viewed themselves as in the end times. It may not be, you know, the second or third generation of the 21st century, this is a long period. Sometimes the church is ascending, sometimes it's descending, sometimes it looks like the church is winning, other times it looks like the church is losing. I think we have to be very careful. I do believe there are many Antichrists. I do believe that there will be an Antichrist, but the identification of that, I think that's probably beyond Uh, most people's ability to make these kind of predictions. And again, when people have made them, they have been wrong. Um, I think we should get out of the speculation business and get into the business of having a future expectation and discharging our responsibilities in the here and the now.
1: Yeah. No, that's good. And and my question kind of is already then jumping into amillennialism and other views, which I want to get to. So maybe I need to fast forward to that point. But before I do, um, uh, one comment that I have heard is is this idea that kind of, it, it seems like you have to have a PhD in theology or in the book of Revelation to understand this stuff. And it seems very discouraging or disheartening to be like, well, when I read in Revelation 20, that there's going to be a thousand years, and then a Christian comes along and says, well, maybe there's not a thousand years actually. And there's, a, there's going to be an Antichrist. Well, maybe there's not an antichrist so there's this piece or maybe that's not and it's like the end is in the future no the end is now and it's like why is it not just more simple straightforward why is god not presenting his word where we can just sit down read it and understand it like we can other books in the bible so kind of how do we wrestle with this difficulty and kind of discouraging aspect of it's just like whatever it seems straightforward oh maybe it's not straightforward that's
0: a that's a really good question and it's a very fair question Um, I I think the way of approaching it is this. uh, I'm not saying you have to have a PhD, uh, be able to read Hebrew, Greek, uh, have all of these capacities. There are many people who do, uh, and they often do very good work. I think the Bible can be understood. The message I think is is essentially clear, but it is a it is a document. It has to be interpreted. I mean any book I pick up in my library or you in your library, we're going to look at the words that are used, we're going to look at the context, we're going to ask and say is this what kind of genre is this? Is it historical? Is there symbolism here? I think those are things that can and should be taught in our churches. I think one of the big challenges we have today, Ryan, is that often our churches are not really schools. Uh, You know, they're they're places sometimes of entertainment. Other times, they're places of counseling and worship and fellowship. All those things are very important. But I do think churches need to be schools where we teach people and say, God has revealed himself in, in this Word. But remember, God's infinite and eternal. We're temporal and finite. He is going to use symbolism. He is going to use metaphors. I mean, the great Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas even said, all language about God is an an analogy. Well, that means that we need to be in churches where our pastors and teachers help us to come to, you know, a pretty sophisticated way of thinking. No, you don't have to have a PhD. I think the Bible is clear about most things. It's certainly clear about our sin. It's clear about our need for a Savior. Um, I think it's clear about all kinds of things. But uh, on the other hand, remember, we are a bookish people. The Jews were bookish people. We are we're an extension of that bookishness. The idea of study, reflection, schooling, learning, um, catechism, all of those things are, are normal and should be acceptable to us. So, you know, sometimes we exalt our prophecy teachers and don't hold them accountable. Um, and, and again, Christianity is not just your or my personal experience with God. It is that. But remember, Christianity is a movement for 2,000 years that's spread around the globe. And there have been many competent voices who have spoken in these areas.
1: Yeah. You know, I often think of it as like, sometimes it's hard just to understand someone's text message that's written in English in yeah. today's world. And then we have to recognize with, it comes a book of revelation, all of scripture. We're trying to understand a document that's at least 2000 years old, written in a different culture at a different time to a different group of people in a different language. And we want to just say, I want to be able to open this and understand it without having really put a, a lot of work into it. Um, and again, there are clear things that is necessary for salvation that are like that. But uh, I I don't think we should expect it all to be like that. I think it's amazing that we are able to understand as much as we do so simply uh, rather than rather the way around. So, um, okay. So now one, I guess I got to take it one more issue before we jump into the four different views. Um, and what really kind of prompted this conversation is kind of what's going over, uh, uh, going on over in Israel right now. And so there's some different ways in which Christians approach this idea between uh, the relationship between Israel and the Church, are there future predictions for Israel? Has the Church uh, kind of been grafted in? Now the Church is that Israel's promise. Kind of what are some different ways in which Christians look at this, and kind of maybe the reasons, or kind of how do we think about these questions?
0: Yeah, I think that this is a very significant theological issue. In fact, I think one of the great roles that the Apostle Paul played, which made him different than the other Apostles, is that it appears in his writings that he is primarily the person who makes sense of the coming of the Messiah, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and how it relates back to the Old Testament to Israel, uh, to God's uh, people in the Old Testament. And and therefore, we have these various questions. Now, what is the relationship? You know, in, in the ancient church, and I mean really early, there were only Jewish Christians. There were no Gentiles. How did that early Christian movement relate to rabbinical Judaism, the Sadducees, the Pharisees? And then further, once the Gentiles come in, once the message is heard that all people are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity and moral worth, but were fallen and need a redemptor, well Christianity, the Gentiles, take that to the to the to the world. Uh, I think in many respects Christianity has taken Jewish ideas and shown them that they now have a universal application. However, there are still these these questions and you've you've raised them properly. You know, some people, for example, would look at these issues of agog and magog. And is this Russia? uh, You know, at at the time, fighting today, uh, uh, you know, the the word uh, that relates to to this question, they interpret it as, as being an application of Russia. Well, Ryan, most most Christian scholars through the centuries have seen Ezekiel 38 and 39 as really applications to ancient Israel, that these were uh, Israel uh, being attacked by, you know, the Assyrians in these various groups. So, a lot of people would see these applications not as futuristic, but as an application of what happened before. And there are many Christians even today who see some of these issues relating to persecution as fulfilled earlier in the Christian centuries. So, so the idea that this is all crystal clear, that we don't have to consider any of these alternative positions, you know, if Jesus has come and his death on the cross has satisfied God's wrath against our sin, well, then how does this relate to those Old Testament sacrifices? And how will this be applied, you know, to the future? I like to tell people that, look, there— this this is one of the areas of Christian theology in which there are real differences. We need to be patient, and we need to be respectful. And I think it's irresponsible to say that this is the biblical possession position. No, uh, St. Augustine, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, they all held eschatological views. And, and these are some of the great not only the great thinkers of Christianity Ryan these are some of the brightest minds in western civilization and devout followers of Christ they didn't hold popular views that are very common on the radio today that yeah, makes yeah. me think hey how can i how can i get a basic eschatology 101 how can i learn the key ideas That's what I try to do in my book. I don't even take a position in my book. I just want to help people to summarize the viewpoints.
1: Yeah. So if someone then is, let's say a dispensationalist, uh, can you maybe, that would be someone who believes that there still is this future promise and prediction for Israel and the church is not that. So can you maybe give a a short summary of kind of what is a dispensationalist and how do they view Israel in the church?
0: Yeah, there, there are two types of premillennialism, and premillennialism just means Christ is going to return before, pre-the millennium. The millennium would be a thousand years. There are two types, dispensational and historic premillennialists. Dispensationalism has developed. Uh, you and I were both students. I'm an adjunct professor at Biola. Robert Sosi was one of my professors. He was a leading dispensational theologian. They had discussions with people in the reform tradition, and now we talk about uh, progressive dispensationalism. But it is essentially the idea. the The way the dispensational premill differs from the historic premill is they believe there's a unique application to Israel that God is not completed with his, uh, his role of the Jews as God's people, and there will be an element in our eschatology that has application to the Jew, and then another one that will have an application to the Christian. Historic premill, uh, they don't necessarily hold that two views of uh, Jews and Christians, but they do believe in a, in a literal millennium and Christ to a return before it. And, yeah, and again, yeah. that is a complicated issue. Uh, even people in the millennial tradition believe that near the end, there will be a work of God's grace where many Jews will embrace the Messiah. By the way, um, I read a number of years ago that Messianic Judaism is one of the fastest growing elements within Judaism itself. So, uh, you know, the idea that God will call Jews and Gentiles, that's not done, even though the amillennial Postmill often will say in a New Testament context, the applications that were at one time given to Israel are now given to the church through Christ.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So that's, so it's good kind of breakdown on the, 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 um, dispensational and historic premillennialism and kind of their view of, of God still having kind of this plan for Israel. Um, how would, how would then someone who holds this camp, what, how would they see the news of what's going on in Israel right now? Do they see this as a fulfillment? Is this telling us something about what's coming in as far as end times?
0: Well, I, I, I think that kind of 20th century classical dispensationalism, and, and, and again, even within that dispensational camp, there are some that are, you know, I think more retrospective, they're more careful. Robert Sosi in my view, was a very careful thinker, though he did believe in dispensationalism. Um, essentially, I think the dispensational writers like uh, Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, and many others—they would say that Israel becoming a nation in 1948—that's a time. That—that's a timekeeper. As soon as that happened, now we have Israel back into their land, and we can then expect that there's going to be a timing that is going to. Uh, open up that will lead to all of these eschatological views. Whereas an amillennialist and a postmillennialist, they would look at that and say, well, it's extraordinary that Israel has become a nation. And it may be, in fact, something God was involved with, but it doesn't necessarily place us in a context where we can then think the end is imminent.
1: Yeah. So that's the kind of the the follow-up then is, is kind of on the flip side, you have more of kind of a reformed approach or a covenant theology, which says, no, uh, the church has been grafted into the promise. So it's kind of different than replacement theology. And I'm looking at our clock and I have like 17 minutes left, 16. I didn't, I didn't time this conversation very well. Um, but so you have like replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel. Then you have more of a covenant theology where the, the church is, is grafted into the promises of Israel. And so, uh, it's, not as relevant. So the question to come in of, of those who are not dispensationalists, maybe those that hold the covenant theology uh, that the church has been grafted in, does the modern-day Israel and the events currently happening hold any biblical significance? It seemed like you kind of said, no, not really. Well, I, I, I want
0: to be careful there, because even those who have adopted kind of an all-millennial perspective, Anthony Hukuma. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger, leading authors who've written in this field who have great books on amillennialism. Even some of them would say, um, Gerald McDermott, an Anglican theologian that I think is a, a great scholar, you know, they lay out the idea that near the end, there, God may be doing a revival of the Jews. But but I think the amillennial and postmillennial would be quite clear That what happened in 1948 was an extraordinary thing and maybe a great thing and even maybe a God thing, but it is not a marker or a timekeeper for the eschatological events of the end.
1: Okay. Now, we have been talking about this idea of amillennialism now for a little bit, uh, but maybe didn't kind of lay it out like you laid out the historic and dispensational premillennialism. So can you kind of give a a brief overview of what is amillennialism?
0: Yeah, uh, amillennialism is the view. So you put an A before a Greek word, you negate it. A theist believes in a personal God, an atheist doesn't believe in, in personal God. Amillennialism, no literal reign of Christ. The amillennial position looks at Revelation 20 and says... Our understanding of that has to be understood in a broad biblical sense. So, the amillennial interpretation is that the millennium relates to the entire period of church history. It's actually a reference of Christ reigning through the church or through the martyrs in heaven between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So, of course, we are in this long period, but, but that is a symbolic reigning and it will come and, and come into the world. Again, the already not yet, the not yet will be that second coming. So they understand the millennium in a spiritual sense. They look at Revelation 20, and they say it makes much more sense to interpret it in light of our uh, theological views uh, throughout the New and Old Testament. So it is a very simple interpretation. Part of the challenge is, can they appropriately interpret it symbolically? That, that's the challenge that their critics would raise.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and would one verse that maybe is used to help make sense of that be that first John 2 verse that says we're in the last hour, you know, uh, we're, we're in that end times now where you know, we know that it is the last hour, and so how can we be waiting for this future millennium that is the yeah. last hour if we're in it right now?
0: Yeah, I I think that that's generally the way the amillennial would approach it. They would say, look, um, you know, we understand how uh, all of these features of Christian theology show us to be in that period. And so the amillennialists believe that interpreting Revelation 20 symbolically Mm -hmm. makes the best sense and and understanding in light of Christian thought. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what then would the pre-millennialists say in response to a verse like 1 John 2 that says, you know, we know that it's the last hour, if they don't believe this is the last hour, at least in talked about revelation?
0: Well, I, I think it's a fair question. I mean, if, if you believe that uh, eschatology really started in 1948, then what was John talking about? I think that's a fair question to, uh, to raise. I think it does show that, uh, at least in terminology, the apostles seem to think that Nero being on the throne, people being persecuted in the first century, I mean, we haven't talked about uh, a whole side of interpretation that, that is called preterism, that sees some of these great events in Matthew and in Revelation as fulfilled in the first century, and then later will be viewed in the future. So... I think that's that is a fair question. And um I I think they probably would be they, they probably would say, well, um okay, but in a in a secondary sense. I don't find that very convincing. I think the idea biblically is that the whole period of church history is described as the end.
1: Yeah. Now, would someone who is a millennial um Believing that yeah, the end time started with Jesus first coming, would they be considered like a partial preterist, where some things uh, were fulfilled in the first century but not everything? Uh, can you be amillennial in a full preterist, or are you not a preterist at all? Is it a different category for that? How does how does preterism fit yep. with amillennialism?
0: Well, not all amillennialists all think alike, just like not all premillennialists think alike. Um, uh, an amillennialist may take the idea that the way the understanding could come earlier uh, and then be fulfilled later. You also have postmillennialists, and postmillennialists and amillennialists have differences. But uh, that I would say that question of preterism, whether any of these events that relate to persecution mm-hmm. happened in the first century, that is an increasingly popular view. Most amillennialists, I don't think, hold uh, a full preterism. Uh, If they hold any type of preterism, it would be a a partial preterism.
1: Okay. Now, now really quickly, I guess, since we have left off that kind of fourth view that you address here, what would be kind of a basic kind of post-millennial view? How are they different?
0: Okay. So the word post means after, pre-Christ returns before the millennium, amillennialism, no literal millennium. In the it's in the Church Age, postmillennialism was be the view that there will be a, a thousand year period, or roughly a very long period, where the Great Commission will be completed. Christianity will reach the entire world. The world will experience to some degree a Christianization, and then Christ will come. So that is the postmillennial perspective. You kind of got two varieties. You've got. Uh, the theonomic view that is popular with and is often associated with presuppositional apologetics, but you also have more of a Puritan view represented by kind of the classical uh, Reformed guys. But again, the idea is Christianity is going to reach the earth, and their emphasis is we believe we will fulfill the Great Commission. We will not be deterred or defeated. We will accomplish it. I have to say I kind of would like to be a post-millennialist. The challenge, of course, would be, well, what about all of those particular verses that do raise uh, issues of persecution and challenges that seem to come to uh, the end time? So all of the views of the millennium pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, they all have strengths. They all have potential
1: weaknesses. Yeah. So um, one thing I've heard is a argument against like full or hyper-preterism that everything has already been fulfilled is, is then that would mean that we are now living in the reign of Christ. And this is supposed to be Heaven, so to speak, or this is supposed to be that perfect state. And look around you—is this—is this really the yeah. hope that we're we're reading for? Uh, is that kind of an accurate description of like maybe an objection against a full preterist, hyper preterist view? I think it is, and and
0: I mean, there are some people who would say, seemingly the incredible view that Christ has already returned. Um, I I think again that view that there is a future state of the second coming that that's a cardinal Christian view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think full preterism is is a deep stretch,
1: okay now, one thought that I've had as I've studied these topics and and uh, uh is does believing that Jesus could return literally right now does that uh eliminate? some of the potential views that says, oh, no, there are still things in the book of Revelation that we're waiting to be fulfilled before Jesus can return for his second coming. So if, if if you hold the view that Jesus could come back today, does that kind of eliminate some of these possible options and kind of lean towards a another view? Or do all four say, no, Jesus could come back today. Maybe it's the rapture, not his second coming. Or they all kind of make sense of it could be any moment.
0: It's an interesting question because there are particular millennial or eschatological perspectives who would say maybe the Great Commission has to be extended further before that could happen. Or they may say, well, there has to be the, the appearance of the Antichrist or there has to be the rapture of the church. Uh, from an amillennial viewpoint uh, and a historic premillennial viewpoint, I think it could happen at any moment because the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. Right. But if you have to have a Christianization period, that uh, that would have to lie mm. in the future. And I think even the dispensational premillennial view, you'd have to have the Antichrist, the rapture, and things of that nature.
1: Yeah. So that's why it, it did seem to me like we are, we often in just our natural conversation saying, Hey man, Jesus could return any moment. You need to commit your life to him. You don't know when the last, you know, and like Jesus seemed to also have this like conversation. You don't know when the end's going to come, like be ready, be, be on the lookout. You don't know when it's going to come. And so it seems like a view that says, well, actually he can't come back today because X, Y, and Z have not taken place seems to create some problems in my view. And that's where I've kind of lined up with a dispensational pre-millennial view has those issues.
0: I think you're, you're asking a, a, an insightful question. And, and I think that's a potential uh, problem for those who advocate more of the dispensational premillennial. I think it's a fair question. I actually think you've thought through a lot of these issues, Ryan. I, I think you're doing a good job.
1: You know it's it's I always say and I, and I do believe this where if someone's like what's your view I'm like oh I could tell you what my view is and if they're like now defend it I would be like I don't know if I could because <laughs> like I've I've just listened to so many debates on this topic to where yeah. I go I think that person explained it better okay I think I line up with them and every time I listen to a different debate I think the same person on the same view always wins and so I'm like okay that's my view but then to really kind of think through these, um, I had to do some preparation for today, uh, but but those are some of the questions that I've always kind of yeah. thought through. Now, now one of the things, again, that always kind of comes up as we're running out of time is is the rapture. Um, how are these different views going to look at the rapture differently? You kind of spelled it out like an amillennial, historic premillennial, don't believe in the rapture. They think the rapture is the second coming of Jesus. That's yeah. one and the same. Why then would a dispensational premillennial view separate out the rapture from the second coming as two different events?
0: Yeah, very quickly, obviously, the rapture then, how does that relate to the second coming? But what is the placement of the rapture in terms of the uh, period of persecution? Um, uh, you know, post-trib, pre-trib, before the tribulation of the church. In the amillennial view, uh, is very simple. Just as a king would travel and then come back to his, his country, people would go out to meet him and usher him in. So, in that view, you'd have a rapture that would be synonymous mm-hmm. with the second coming. And Among classical dispensationalists, you would have to first have the church raptured, then there would be a years of, of tribulation, and then the second coming. Um, and, and so, you have, you have a lot of issues kind of circulating about uh, those kinds of things. But the timing of the tribulation, the timing of the rapture, I don't think should distract us from the great focus that that Jesus promised uh, himself that he would yeah. return. Yeah. So, sometimes I think we allow these small areas of debate to move us away from the things that we all share in common. And again, I would call that mere Christian eschatology. And if people don't know about it, they should.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sharing my view as you don't in your book either but I think my questions are, are at least showing that I'm, I'm not a dispensational premillennialist um, because I do have a lot of questions about it that, that just doesn't quite sure. make sense and so here's here's one more that, that I've heard said it's a, a pastor who is preaching on dispensational premillennialism talked about you know that he takes the historic grammatical literary hermeneutic and in, in understanding scripture and I say well I would take kind of the same hermeneutic as understanding historical context the grammar literary genre and all that kind of stuff why then would a dispensational sensational premillennialist interpret revelation 20 literal when we're reading apocalyptic literature that's the book of revelation that's the genre is apocalyptic literature which is not necessarily literal i mean it could be but it doesn't have to be and there's so much imagery involved why kind of stick strong to this idea like no I, we want the literal reading when you're reading a genre that that is normally not literal. It's like saying, you know, I'm reading poetry that's very imagery based and I'm going to say it, this is literally true. And we don't do that with Song of Solomon where, you know, the the, the beautiful woman is described as having a neck of neck like the tower of David and shoe, you know, sheep for teeth and pomegranates for cheeks and all this kind of stuff. We're like, okay, that's not literal, that's imagery. Why then stick to a very uh, emphasize a literal reading of Revelation 20 when we're reading apocalyptic literature?
0: Yeah, let me, make, let me answer that question by making, I think, a very important general point. Uh, given that we are dealing with apocalyptic literature, which is hard to understand, Revelation, yeah. Daniel, given that the relationship between Israel and the church is a challenge, and given that some of the great Christian thinkers through the centuries have held various views, I think we should hold our views tentatively. That doesn't mean we have any doubt. It doesn't mean that Uh, you know, we're uncertain. It means that we have to allow certain perspectives. Um, I think think many premillennial dispensationalists would say, well, that's the natural reading of the text. But again, I, I think you've raised a counter challenge. And that is, well, given that we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, and given that the historical uh, statements in scripture say we're already living in the end times. I think those are challenging. And, and again, none of this should cast doubt Mm -hmm. on the truth of the Bible, What it should raise is these are real documents. They have to be interpreted. And, uh, I think sometimes if, if I might say this Catholics and Orthodox look at this and say, well, that's the problem with Protestantism. You know, you, you need an interpretive office. Well, uh, Hopefully, the different branches of Christendom can strengthen each other. And what I try to do in my little book, Christian Endgame, is I try to present all the positions, offer what I think are the strengths and weaknesses. I try to teach people how to think rather than telling them what to think. And, you know, if you're new to this— if you're a newbie, if you haven't studied it for years like Ryan, you could read my book and I think come to a basic understanding. Yeah. And, that, and I give all kinds of recommendations for the best books on all the different views.
1: Yeah, it is a very helpful book. It's short. It's like 80 pages. I read it in about two days, uh, but super helpful getting a brief overview. Again, that book is titled Christian Endgame. Careful thinking about the end times. If you're watching on YouTube, it's linked below. Uh, if I can just finish up with one more question for sure. you. Um, yes. it, 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 one thing I appreciate here is, is again, this focus on mere eschatology um, uh, and mm-hmm. kind of maybe sometimes we've talked about the, the, the issue of really taking a hard stance and saying, this is scripture. What would you kind of leave then um, as a word of encouragement for those who kind of want to be able to address this well with those around them, whether it's in conversations or just within their church, whether they're pastors, how do I talk about this from the pulpit or, or church members addressing this? Maybe I'm making this very broad, but kind of a word of encouragement of kind of how to address this issue. Well, yeah. as we move out from here. Well, uh, you know, I I think we have to be patient
0: with others. I think we have to be patient with ourselves. Even as Christians, we have to be patient with God's timing of all of these events. I realize there are Christian evangelicals who have been told maybe their whole lives that, you know, Israel's a time clock. They look at what's happening. They figure it's locked in. You know, they've heard many of these very famous televangelists who teach on prophecy, And and if they think that's an essential point, I don't want to knock all their blocks down. I don't want to, you know, create a crisis for them. I think I would try to patiently tell them, look, I want you to appreciate that the church didn't begin in the 20th century. Uh, It has a long history. There were great Bible teachers and scholars in the past who've held differing positions. Eschatology is one of the most divisive areas. Maybe we should hold our views Respectfully, tentatively, uh, and and what I often say in all of these issues, Ryan, it's something I deeply believe: truth, unity, and charity. I, if you believe you have the truth, hold on to it tenaciously. Truth is a sacred thing, so hold it. But remember, unity. Uh, Jesus prays for the unity of his church. I try to treat other people. And I try to bring Christians together. I'd rather talk about what we have in common than what differs. And then the last one is maybe the most important, charity. I mean, I could live my entire life and accomplish all kinds of things. But if I'm not loving and caring and patient and kind, Paul says that that's a big problem. Truth, unity, and charity. I would would encourage people to approach it that way. You know, don't knock people's blocks off. Help them. Uh, Try to show them maybe here's a way of thinking carefully about these issues. I think you have all of those characteristics. You had them when you were a student of mine. I see them evident in your ministry today. So I really encourage people to listen to your podcasts. I like what you you do.
1: Wow. That means so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking this time of not only writing this book, but then coming on the show uh, to discuss it and kind of help me and my listeners make sense of the book of Revelation and what scripture has to say about end times. It's been my privilege and my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Well, hey, everybody, again, that book by Professor Kenneth Samples, Christian Endgame, Careful Thinking About End Times, a great introduction to the topic if you want to dive into this, as well as I want to encourage you to subscribe because there's going to be a lot of fun conversations in the coming weeks. For example, November 27, 1 p.m., Greg Kokel is coming on to talk about his book, Street Smarts. The very next day, November 28, 1 p.m., I'm going to be presenting my doctoral research on a theology of the body applied to transgenderism. That same week, three conversations in one week, on Friday, December 1st, 1 p.m., Dr. Richard Howe is coming on to talk about has science refuted miracles and the supernatural? December 6th, 1 p.m., Ross Anderson, former Mormon, is gonna come in to talk about how to respond to Mormon missionaries that come to your door. And finally, December 14th, 1 p.m., Greg Gansel is gonna come in to talk about his book on uh, on desires and how Christianity fulfills our deepest desires and the argument from desire. Again, those are just the ones that I've locked in. There's still more conversations, trying to fit in some conversations before the end of the year. So if you don't want to miss those, like, subscribe, follow for what's coming up, whether it's on YouTube, uh, podcast, or Facebook. If you want to leave a review to help get this out there, you can share it with others that might be uh, interested in learning more about end times as well. There's just going to be a ton of other videos that pop up here on the side on YouTube that our previous shows to help you think well and engage the culture well. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you that you do see the hope and confidence and assurance that we have that Jesus Christ will come back, that he will resurrect the living and the dead and that we will have an eternal resting place with him or without him. And so uh, hopefully this is an encouragement to you as you see and your mission to go out to evangelize, to spread the gospel and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So until then, continue to think deeply about God. Christianity and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. See you next time, everybody. Have a good day.